0: The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 103. The Amazon rainforest contains more than 3,000 types of fruit, only 200 of which are consumed in the Western world. I'm sick of bananas. How do I get my hands on the other 2,800?
1: One, two, three. Four. I'll show you Paris in the morning. I'll show you London
0: afternoon If you feel
1: Your Dublin heart Is burning Yeah well you don't Have to worry Cause we're going There soon And you don't
0: Hello travel nerds and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts travel podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host Travis Sherry and today's episode is part 2 of my interview with New York Times best-selling author David Grant, who's the author of one of my favorite travel books of all time, The Lost City of Z where he documents his travels into the Amazon rainforest to try to find out what happened to the famous explorer Percy Fawcett, and as well as The Lost City of Z, and if it existed, the city that Percy Fawcett was looking for in the 1920s and no one has been able to find. So The Lost City of Z is one of my favorite travel books of all time. David Grant is a fantastic writer. If you missed part one of this interview with David, he goes into depth about his writing and about his experience becoming... A well-known author and a journalist, and really kind of gives us a neat look behind the cover of what it takes to become a novelist and a and a popular journalist and a famous journalist. Really cool stuff there. He also talks about some of the other stories he's written, including hunting for a giant squid, including writing about the Aryan Brotherhood, one of the notorious prison gangs, and all these other interesting stories that he's written about. So if you didn't check out part one of my interview with David, go check that out. You can get that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods. Of course, you can find that on iTunes or Stitcher or however you listen to the podcast. Before we jump into the interview, I do want to ask you one special favor. We are making a run at the top 100 podcast overall on iTunes. And to do that, we need your help. If you could, I'm asking everyone on Wednesday, November 5th, which was yesterday, and then today, Thursday, November 6th, if you're listening to this live, to subscribe to the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast on iTunes. It's very important that people subscribe in a certain small window to really help us get that rating up and compete with the big boys like Freakonomics, NPR, and things like that. It would be an absolute dream if the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast could be up. Up with the big boys. So if you have a second, please subscribe to the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast on iTunes. If you don't know how to subscribe on iTunes, you can go to extrapackofpeanuts.com slash iTunes, and there will be a tutorial up there to show you exactly what you have to do to subscribe to the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast. So if you do that, thank you very much. And now let's dive right into part two with David Graham. So then you you decide to do it, and and you're going, you know, you're going to take the information that you have, you're going to have the map, and your wife signs off on it, I guess, I I would assume, uh, maybe over uh, a few months of you breaking her down or something like that. Then you get there. can you, We don't want to, like, ruin the story for anyone or anything like that, but I want you to kind of talk about being there and and doing this incredible trip and and as you said you didn't think about the dangers beforehand but some of the things that you ran into and some of the issues you had and why you decided to continue on down this path because there could have been many times where you thought all right this this just isn't worth it like this is a great story but i'm not the one to tell it
1: yeah as much as i take risks I'm, i'm pretty cautious when i set out on these things and so the initial thing I did was to try to find a, a good guide, you know, somebody who knew the area. Now, the area where I was going, which was in the Jingu area of the Amazon, many of the the tribes still exist in the region uh, where Mufasa had gone through. You know, have their territory. They're almost like autonomous countries. And because they've been uh, under assault for so many years by loggers and, and, and trappers and, and people basically just trying to take their land, you can't just wander on to their territory. You, 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 just, you just don't do that. You have to make contact, and you then have to meet with them and basically sit down for a meeting with the council and, and try to get entry into their territory. So I found a guy who was uh, skilled enough and able to do that and, and helped me do that. So that was the first step. And we set off. And I'll say with a lot of these stories, you really don't know what you're gonna find, and some stories even more than others. You really, you do all your work, and then you kind of roll the dice. And on that story, I, I really had no idea. I mean, what am I gonna find? Almost a hundred years later, am I gonna find anything? Um, but there was some wonderful serendipity along the way. Um, I stopped at the Bakari tribe which I knew because I also had Fawcett's letters uh, back home, which he would give to Indian runners who would then carry them out of the jungle. And so I kind of knew descriptions of where he had gone, so I tried to go to each place where he had been. And I went to the Bakari tribe, and people, when I got there, and I mentioned Fawcett, they said, well, you really have to speak to this one woman. And and they took me to speak to her, and she didn't know her age, but she was probably about 100 years old. And she had been a little girl when Fawcett came through and she remembered seeing him and, um, and his, and his companions. And this was a big deal because they were the first, you know, among the first white people they had ever seen. And so, uh, you know, she had some memories and then, you know, sometimes it would be strange. I would be standing, I found the place where Fawcett, I was trying to find a place I knew where Fawcett had stayed on the frontier. And, um, somebody led me there. And when they took me there, they said it was right here. And we started kind of they They put their machete in the ground and there was just kind of the ruins of a, of a building. And the jungle had overtaken this ranch house where Fawcett had stayed at. And it was also in that moment where I had some sense about how a city could possibly disappear in the jungle because, you know, this hadn't been that long ago and there was, you know, it had just been totally overtaken. And then we went deeper into the jungle and eventually we got to the Kalapalo tribe and, and the Kalapalos, which I knew Fawcett had stayed with, were really interesting and they had an oral history about Fawcett and his party and uh, it was almost like an epic poem they don't have written records but they passed down these their stories and their legends and their history through oral traditions and they're really quite beautiful the way the poems the rhythms of these stories and they had one about Fawcett again Fawcett being among the first uh, he probably was the first white person they had ever seen and and his Two children, his son and his son's best friend, and like anything, anybody, you know, you're skeptical as a reporter. You know, you don't just take stories and say, "Oh, that. Oh, I saw Fawcett, You know, you have people at the bar. Oh, you know. So you you're, you you have an instinct instinctive skepticism, and you try to fact check things. You have you know ways to fact check. And so, what was interesting about that story is it described Fawcett playing a musical instrument. And they did, in the story, they don't refer to him as Fawcett. They refer to him as the chief but of the, of the party. And they said he played a little musical instrument. And I knew that Fawcett had sent a letter to his wife, and it had never been made public, this fact, that he had brought with him a little recorder. That in the letter he described to his wife, Nina, that he would play it in the solitude of the jungle to stave off madness. And so the fact that they described in this oral history him playing this exact instrument... And kind of instrument to me solidified that this this was a this was an account I could play stock in, and in that oral history they actually describe. What happened to Fawcett and, and how he headed in a certain direction and they warned him not to go and how they could see his fire for several days. Then the fire suddenly went out and they went to inspect and they tried to beg him not to go in that direction because they said in that direction was the fierce Indians. And, and that oral history really, I thought, held enormous clues to the fate of Fawcett and his party.
0: How is it possible that he was able to kind of make good with the tribes and different things like that? And how were you guys able to, I know you said you had an explorer with you and you had a guide with you, but when you would come into these areas and you mentioned, you don't just kind of show up and say, Hey, here we are. How were you able to break down the barriers between yourself who they don't know and uh, being a white person who's taken over a lot of their land and them and get them to tell you these stories?
1: it wasn't always easy and sometimes it didn't always happen, you know, as as well as you like. And sometimes it did. And, um, you know, I think you, one can be naive about processes. I mean, you know, I've been in situations where you just think, well, I'm a nice person. I'm not threatening things are going to be okay. And you know what? They're not. I mean, I've been in situations where, you know, uh, I've been held at gunpoint by, soldiers and 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 in situations that just aren't safe and and you end up in a new i think it's naive you know it's naive to think that everything always just you know, if you're nice everything will work out. I think it was very important to go go about things the right way. Um, I brought gifts. Um I was told to bring gifts that I brought gifts. We went up to the Kalapala tribe, we had filled the canoe filled with uh, you know, chickens and beans and, and whatnot we could find and and um, you know, presented them in a very kind of formal manner so that they could have a feast and um and again, I really was very careful in the guide I picked who had some contacts. So once they had a contact within the tribe, they opened things up. And I, on that trip, I really felt fortuitous. I had very good experiences. I lived with the tribes for many days. And, and, and I was also very grateful because when we were trekking, you know, we, we were eaten by bugs. And, and then when you would get to the, to the indigenous communities they had these wonderful thatched houses they look almost like the overturned ships hulls of ships are quite enormous like fit uh, these extended families and they're built in a big circular plaza and they're very very cool they keep the doors low they don't have windows and so just even just the the living conditions improve remarkably and um you know, I took some tricks from Fawcett, too. I mean, Fawcett, um, to your question, how he did it, is Fawcett really believed in taking small parties because he thought they would be less threatening. He did learn and pick up some language from, you know, over the, ex- over the years in the, in, in the jungle. And so I think that really helped him. You know, he wouldn't go in with these kind of... And I took that approach, too. Went in with a very small group and tried to make our intentions as clear as possible. You know, Fawcett, when he would encounter tribes, would often drop his weapon... And marched toward them without his weapon, just waving a flag, his handkerchief over his head, uh, knowing he would probably be killed even if he used his weapon. The numbers, you know, wouldn't have panned out. For me, the best part about the trip because I'm not a I'm not a trekker and the parts in the jungle, humping through the jungle, after a certain while to me, I you know I know there are all these other people going to Amazon. They're like they're like, oh, this little plant is different from that plant, and oh my goodness, look at this. You know, for me, it was just like started just look like a green blur of green devouring murk, and I was pretty you know. I, and I, I'm more of a, you know I was much more happy when I could just kind of be with people and uh, kick kicking back in a hammock. For me, the best, the most rewarding parts were when I actually stayed with the tribes and with able to, uh, you know, hear their stories and tell them. And and this was a case, I think, once people really did know and understand who I was, I wasn't a threat and I wasn't a logger. And I, you know, and, and so at that point, they were incredibly generous and, and incredibly open. And, and so the experiences were quite positive.
0: Did word spread about you from tribe to tribe. So then as you went, did it did it get easier to, to kind of make inroads with those tribes? Did they have contact with each other or was it always kind of they're meeting you for the first time, no one knows you're there type thing?
1: Uh, I think, I, I suspect that's a good question. I don't think I know the answer fully, but based on history and knowing when other expeditions have gone through and even falsehood, word spreads when there's a party in the Xingu area. The tribes um, share enough territory that I think inevitably word would have spread. But the process of entry to each tribe is a separate, distinct process. And so just because you had entered one tribe doesn't mean you'll have success entering the other. And in fact, at the very end of the expedition, it would have been a fool's mission. But after hearing that oral history, I was pretty sure in the more or less possible area where Fossil would have been killed, which is what I concluded he had been killed by this other tribe. I didn't have entry into that tribe and my guide didn't have contact and also the chances of finding the bones after these many years would have you know in the middle of the jungle would have so it would have been a fool's mission but like that was an just a opportunity where I just said you know what we're not going to take that step on that part of the trip. But we, we took enough chances at various points. We had pushed ahead at various points. At one point I got lost and separated from my guide. When we pushed on to the Kwikuru tribe. And the reason I wanted to get to the Kwikuru tribe was because I had heard there was an anthropologist, uh, an archaeologist who had worked in that area for many years. He was a little bit like a faucet character. He just <laughs> lived in the jungle for years at a time doing his research and uh, you know, you hear these things. Of, well, you got to find him, and and so I wanted to find him, and, and 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 that was just kind of mind blowing because, you know, I went to see him, and again, having that contact helped me be welcomed into the tribe. At one point, he said, "Look, I want to show you something." He said, "You know, Fawcett, thought um, Fawcett was just kind of nuts, and that his theory of a, a lost city could not exist because the Amazon was a counterfeit paradise." And he said to me. Uh, look, you know, Fawcett was an amateur, but he knew some things and understood some things that even the professional archaeologist didn't. And he said, look, I want to show you something. And he took me out into the wilderness with his machete. The chief came with us. And at one point, you know, he, he pointed to the ground and there was a moat uh, and it had been excavated. And I, and I said, well, what is that? He said, well, it's a moat. I said, well, what's a moat doing here? There's basically nothing else around. And he said, well, you're actually looking at parts of an ancient settlement. And they carbon dated it back to, I think this mode, I'm trying to remember the date now, but, you know, it was about, I think it was about 800 or 900 A.D. I don't remember precisely the date on that moat. Um, but in any case, it was part of an ancient settlement and uh, pre-Columbian, a pre-Columbian ancient settlement. And he said, you're actually standing in the middle of an ancient settlement. And he began to show me uh, the evidence where roads had been and where it was a raised where bridge had been. And sure enough, in the very area where Fawcett was looking for a city of Z, this archaeologist had found evidence of, of many ancient settlements uh, that had, were connected by roadways and causeways built at right, built at right angles uh, that had populations of, of small cities of Europe at that period, and, uh, you know, ancient pottery. And, and that was just kind of really, that had an end to that story, you know, that really, for me, was, was uh, revelatory.
0: Yeah, and logistically, then with your trip down there to the Amazon, how long were you there? How'd you guys get around? You mentioned you were trekking and things like that. Um, did the guide kind of know where to go? You and you also mentioned that you got lost at one point. So I'm interested in like in logistically how you actually set up the thing because you said you didn't do much planning ahead of time, but there's obviously some things that that you obviously did beforehand to to ensure as much safety as possible.
1: Yeah, well, one of the first things I did was I actually called the uh, leader of the expedition that had gone before me who was kidnapped and held in the jungle for several days before they were eventually released. So the first thing I did was to call them and say, you know, what happened, (laughs) you know, what do you recommend? So that doesn't happen. And they gave me advice. And in fact, they were the ones who pointed me, I believe they were the ones who pointed me to this guide, if I'm not mistaken. I'm trying to remember how I found this guide, but they gave me various suggestions just in terms of going in uh, low key, where to go, had faucets, maps. So I took information from them. um, And then I got to this guy who helped early on try to get word that, you know, a party would be coming in into the Jingu to try to make contact. You know, together he and I tried to map out the logistics. And it was it was complicated because, you know, where exactly we were gonna go and we were crossing different tribal areas. The where we wanted to go though with this Basically, I just wanted to follow Fawcett's trail and mapped his exact trail where everywhere he went from, you know, before he got into the jungle, on his way into the jungle, entry point into the jungle. And then as far as I knew, he had gone into the jungle where there was evidence. And so the goal was just to follow that trip. And then it was just figuring out, okay, which tribal territories do we enter? Which tribes do we need to make contact with? Taking advice from the party which had been kidnapped, lying on my guide. Um, and it was really just the two of us, uh, me and my guide. You know what was fascinating is I had Fawcett's letters and dispatches describing his trip, and so there were parts of the trip, for example, where Fawcett had described, you know, just this backbreaking journey that took them. You know, it was just ten days, or two weeks, but it was just backbreaking, and 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 uh, one of the members of Fawcett's. Expedition is already getting sick and was worn down, hacking through the jungle. And we followed that route and, um, we went by car and there was nothing there because the whole forest had been cut down. And all you could see if it, it looked like Nebraska or something. I mean, there was, there were soybean farms, uh, soybean and just complete deforestation, just to a shocking degree. I mean, you could look out and see the horizon and it was just, there was nothing there. And we made that trip in one day. And so, you know, for me, that was, you know, again, part of the, the story for me was understanding how the world changed and, and, and what had happened to these places and, and and really to have these parallel travelogues, you know, Fawcett's travelogue in the 1920s and my travelogue in 2005 and basically show, not by any heavy handed technique, but just show by describing what I saw, knowing what he described, he saw, so that people could just see how the world had changed and how the jungle had changed. You know, I was just like, wow. But north, at a certain point, the jungle really did then begin to take hold. And interestingly enough, it's the tribal areas where the jungle remains. Every If you look now at satellite photos of these areas, it's basically there's deforestation all around, and then they hear. Areas that remain, these almost semi-autonomous tribal areas, are where the forest remains uh, in the Shengu. And as we got into that area, then the jungle resumed. And then uh, we did trekking. I mean, I, I was gone for two months, and about two weeks was getting into the jungle, um, you know, going to Rio and going then to Quillabah, uh And then a month and a half was uh, our journey.
0: So how does an experience like this then change you? I mean, you're obviously one of the few people who's gotten to see something like this. And you mentioned that the deforestation wasn't something that you considered even before you went and was kind of a, just a periphery thing that you end up seeing amidst this whole story. But how do you come back personally after seeing a a part of the world that not many people will see and having experiences that not many people will have and then try to put that into a, into a book that that people can resonate with who will never go and take those adventures that you did.
1: I think as a writer, you know, the challenge and and the rewarding part is that what you're doing is trying to make sense of something and you're actually trying to make sense of the experience. And so for me, that process of writing is the process of, of just that. I mean, it's for me, it's the whole purpose is to try to somehow make sense of of what I've seen, um, to make sense of Fawcett's life. And to try to tell it in some compelling way. In that book, you know, I'm not a memoirist. I don't mind my own life for stories. I really am a reporter who is interested in external, you know, other people uh, around me. But in that case, you know, I am a stand in in many ways on my trip for the reader. And that's how I want to try to portray that so that the reader can experience things the way they're unfolding and you don't have to be a great explorer or you don't have to you know be a marathon runner to experience this this journey and so you're both sharing that experience and trying to hopefully in some sense make some deeper sense of things and so you know to me every story has a deeper meaning it's trying to kind of peel about what those meanings are and sometimes i don't know what they are until about halfway through, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. So, I mean, part of the story is just telling the story, right? The the, the frame of the story, you know, the characters, the beginning. But, you know, through the process of, of writing, you start to try to find some deeper meanings in the case of Fawcett and Discovery, the the nature of the Amazon, the nature of Counterfeit Paradise, the nature of, of civilizations um, and how they take hold and could they exist in such an area. Um, in many ways, my quest was a biographical quest, and it was really about the elusiveness of trying to chase somebody because I was chasing Fawcett all over the damn globe trying to understand this man and piece together this, this kind of vanquished life. And so you're kind of chasing that. And hopefully, you know, with these stories, they start to accrue some, some meaning and you kind of try to, the process of writing them is both trying to make the story compelling, but also trying to figure out what the hell they're really about at their essence.
0: And so you're mentioning telling these stories, David, and I know that you actually have one that will be coming up, something that you talked about at the top of the show as taking three years, or this is in your third year of telling this story, and it's something that you have in the pipeline. So could you give people a little bit of a teaser about what your next book is going to be about?
1: Yeah, I've been uh, working on a a new project, a new book, um, which is about an old crime story uh, that took place in the 1920s uh, in Oklahoma, and it involves the Osage Indians who in the 1920s became the wealthiest people in the world. Uh, They were had been poor and and driven off much of their land across the Midwest and bought a bit of land in Oklahoma. And oil was discovered underneath it at the time, one of the largest producing oil deposits. There was only about a little over 2,000 surviving Osage at the time who were members of the tribe. Uh, And overnight, or almost overnight, they became millionaires and multimillionaires. And they lived in mansions. um, They had cars. They had servants, many of whom were white. Um, This, of course, all fascinated the country and much of the world because it subverted and belied so many of the stereotypes about Native Americans. uh, And people, society reporters from Harper's would travel out to cover them, and they referred to them as the plutocratic Osage and the red millionaires. And then in the in the 1920s, they began to be serially murdered off what was really uh, one of the most sinister crimes in the history of this country, and in history, I think, in general. One by one, they were being killed. Right now, I'm writing about a family where a sister was found uh, shot in a pasture. Her mother was then uh, killed of suspected poisoning. Another sister, and Her sister's husband and and a servant were then killed when their house was blown up with a bomb. Uh, And one by one, every member of that family was killed off, except for one who I'm writing about right now, up until the point where she's slowly being poisoned. And there were many, many cases of uh, basically people killing the Osage. And basically anyone who investigated the cases was killed. There was enormous corruption in law enforcement. And so the case tries to peel back uh, this crime, what really happened. Um, hopefully, bring to light a crime uh, and an injustice that that has been overlooked and is not really known today. And also, it became the case became the FBI's first major homicide case. Hoover, at that point, was just named director, and uh, this becomes a central case. And so, it's also about the birth of modern law enforcement, and the birth of the FBI. Um, it's about um, the use of many modern techniques of detection to try to solve a crime. So it has a lot of different interesting themes, and it's been a real a journey to research and and try to find the you know the strands to tell the story. But I'm I'm getting there, and I hope to you know be finished by next year.
0: Yeah, it sounds fascinating. Just another story that I knew nothing about or very little about, and that you've been able to shine a light on in in a manner that really tells a multitude of stories and not just one, but but paints a picture of the whole thing. And so you're looking for that to possibly be out when was that
1: well i think it would be you know publishing is so so i i hope to finish next year hopefully by summer or fall to have a draft and then i suspect then it will take about another year so book publishing is slow so i think hopefully two years from now hopefully if your listeners still remember the book is entitled the killers of the flower moon and uh, hopefully that will be in a bookstore eventually
0: Awesome, and David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the incredible stories that you've written that I continue to enjoy over and over. And before I let you go, if you can remind people how they can come find you, how they can get your books, and also how they can read the newer stuff that you write—not just the the books, but also some of the articles that you you touch on.
1: Yeah, well, the two books um, uh, are uh, which we talked about, "The Lost City of Z." You could find that still should be available in bookstores and you can get at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and Owls and a place like that. And then uh, and The Same of the Devil and Sherlock Holmes, which is a collection of many of the stories we talked about, the one about the giant squid, the mysterious death of the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes scholar, which we didn't get to talk too much about, and the prison gang story. A lot of those stories are there. And then I've done uh, recently some stories uh, since then, and um, those can usually be found at the New Yorker uh, website, whose archive is, at least for the moment, uh, fairly available, but is probably worth the chunk of change that... Be able to go through their archives in general. So usually those three places that uh, you could find find the stories and and hopefully um, eventually uh, Killers of the Flower Moon will you know will find uh, find its way into a bookstore too.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much once again, David. Thanks for coming on.
1: All right. Thank you so much. It was great to do.
0: Guys, if you want to know more about David or check out some of the works we've talked about and grab some of his books, you can head on over to davidgran.com. And of course, all the links that we've talked about can be found in the show notes. You can find those at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash David Gran. That's G-R-A-N-N. Also, don't forget, we love your recommendations on show topics and guests. David was someone I've wanted to have on the show for a while. So if you have a favorite author or a traveler or adventurer or anyone you think would make a good guest, Send me an email, trav at extrapackofpeanuts.com, or you can tweet us at Pack of Peanuts. I'll do everything in my power to get them on the show. So, David, thanks again for coming on. Everyone, thanks for joining us and for all the support that has made us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And until tomorrow, happy free travels.